Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Today's sermon is titled, The Living God is Just. And as we're using this sermon to kind of set the scene of the context of what we're going to look for over the next 12 weeks, um, today we're looking at a little passage taken from 1 Kings 17, which introduces the character of Elijah, and then a little bit from 1 Kings 18. And as we set that scene, we're going to go a bit heavy on the context and history this week. Um, But I promise you that as the series unfolds, you'll be happy there's been context and history, and you won't just be a little bit bored. I am going to try and make it interesting, because I know those ones can be a bit hard. Um, So our first passage today introduces the prophet of Elijah and the state of brokenness that Israel has found itself in during our series. It says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastwards, and hide in the the Kerith ravine east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. I've always loved the book of Kings, and I'll kind of talk about why in a second. But as I was reading and rereading this passage in preparation for writing this sermon and thinking about this series, I was blown away by something I'd never really noticed before. And that is the fact that Elijah is immediately provided for through a raven, not quite a bird of prey, but still a carnivore, bringing him food and water every day. And I couldn't picture it. This bird bringing meat and bringing bread to Elijah. So I went to the best source of knowledge on animals and I typed in YouTube and I put birds and food. And I found a very accurate recreation of what this process would have looked like as the raven sources the food for Elijah. Can we play the video? Obviously, this is not what it would have looked like. But there is, as it turns out, no video of a raven providing food for someone. So as you can see, this bird sorts his problem by going to the meal deal section and just collecting a meal deal. And a very helpful person later in the video opens the door again so the bird can get out with his sandwich. (laughs) Took a bit longer to get to the the little punchline there, but that'll do, that's great. (laughs) I like that one person's first response is to help the bird, and the other person's first response is to try and get the sandwich back from the bird. Uh, Isn't human nature great? Uh, How different people will respond in the exact same situation. So obviously, the raven providing for Elijah didn't look like this, but it did look miraculous. This is a bird, an undomesticated animal, physically flying with bread and meat, we don't know where he got it from, to provide for a man in a desert, in a wilderness. God is using something that is against the very nature of the animal to support someone. He's showing his power in that very act of provision. 
Um, Rosie is going to cover more about the provision of the Lord next week. She's got a great passage about how Elijah is provided for. But I wanted us to stop and marvel at just that act of a bird doing something against its nature. Its nature is to get food for itself. Its nature is to look after itself. But God has used it to bring food for Elijah. And as Mikey was opening this service, he stopped and he mentioned that we should be in a place of awe that our God reigns, that he is in power and in control. And this passage immediately sets that up. Nature is under the power of God. And we're going to look at that in this series. We're going to see that God is in control. But the other way that God controls nature in this passage is that he physically stops the rain. He physically stops the rain in a whole nation, in a whole land, and brings about a drought. And we're going to see why that matters. We're going to see um, why that happens in a minute. But as we get there, we're going to go through the context of where we find these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who isn't in this passage but comes in later in the story. As a church, we believe that the scriptures are true, authoritative, and the divinely inspired word of God. And it means that when we come to these Old Testament narratives, we can know that they are completely valid and happened as they were written. And that can be hard to imagine when we see stories of animals going against their nature, when we hear of floods, and all of those kind of things. But as we read them, we also need to understand what we're reading, why it was written, and where it fits in to God's big picture for his people and for us today. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see some incredible stories of God moving in miracles and prophecy, and understanding their context is going to help us to understand the very nature and power of the God that we worship. The first thing to know is that we're introduced to Elijah and Elisha in the Book of Kings. In our modern-day Bible, the Book of Kings is split into two separate books, 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But originally, it was written as one book of history, and it was written during the time of the exile of the Israelites in Babylon. That was about 550 years before Christ was born. And it tells the story that begins in chapter 1 of Kings with all 12 tribes of Israel having been united together in one kingdom by King David. And then the kings that follow him, starting with Solomon. None of them live up to the example of King David, who himself was a flawed man, and certainly none of them live up to the promise of a Messiah that the Jewish people have been made. The story begins and ends focused on the city of Jerusalem. Kings 1 starts with Solomon's temple being built, a physical representation of God's power and magnificence on earth. And the book of Kings ends with the destruction of that temple and God's kingdom sent into exile for rebelling against him. It's a story of God's people being continually short of the glory that he set before them, being offered endless miracles, opportunities, prophecies that were meant to guide them back to him and failing to recognise and see that, failing to live in the gifts that God has given. And honestly, it's one of my favourite books of the Bible because it reminds us that we are flawed, that we are broken, that we don't get things right, that God continues to provide that God continues to love us and show us opportunities to come back to him. And it also shows us that despite all that, we still fall short. So there must be something better to come. The book of Kings is about how much we need Jesus, how much we need the perfect saviour, how we can never build our own kingdoms. 
how we can never make this earth what we want it to be without a true, honest focus on God and the work of Jesus on the cross. And the centre of the book explains how Israel split apart because of its sin, going from one kingdom to two, and then it introduces the prophets. And the prophets were sent to try and guide Israel back to God, to provide those miracles, opportunities, prophecies, to point people back to the person of God. The book of Kings is beautiful, and it allows us to understand our sin and our frailty, allows us to understand the character and provision of God, and it allows us to see the plan of redemption that leads us to Jesus. And Kings reminds us of that. We're going to see time and time again how God's people fail him, and yet he loves us and brings us back. In the midst of drought and famine, destruction, and ultimately exile, God is at work amongst his people. His purposes are never overcome. And reading this book is going to help us face the painful and difficult seasons in our life where we feel far from God, where we feel like we're in a drought, where we feel like we don't understand what's happening. Because this book is about chaos, but not the absence of God. So we're at a point where these two kingdoms have split apart. We've got the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom is ruled by King Ahab, who is married to a foreign queen, Jezebel. The two of them have begun to lead the people of Israel away from the Lord. They're worshipping false gods, and they've managed to build a temple to try and rival the temple of the Lord. They've built a temple to the false god Baal, and they filled it with jewels and riches and idols. And they've asked and convinced their people to turn away from the worship of the one true God to the worship of this false god, Baal. And I always think you, you know how false a god by how much extra stuff you have to add to him. And in the case of Baal, they gathered all the jewels and the royals and all the robes, and they made a fuss and they covered it in gold, like, I don't know, a Trump hotel or something. It was falseness. It was an image of success that just wasn't real. And as we begin our chapters looking at Elijah and Elijah, we start with this King Ahab. And King Ahab is described as doing more evil than any who were before him. In all of history, in all of time, King Ahab at this point is described as the most evil king of them all. This is who the Israelites are led by. And his people have been led astray because of it. And so here enters Elijah, a prophet sent to warn the people of Israel and point them back to God through signs, wonders and prophecies. And I know that's a lot of context. And the rest of this is going to be quite short because we're going to keep it simple. We're going to keep it to two points. And those two points are hopefully going to help us as we read the rest of this series. And the first point is this, that sin is deserving of punishment And our God is just, and he must bring judgment. Sin is deserving of punishment, but God is just. So let's read our first passage again. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next years except at my word. And then later it says, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So God's people have fallen away from him. They're worshipping idols, 
under the false teaching of King Ahab. They're following the god Baal, who is false and is unable to act in power. And this act of rebellion, this act of rebellion by a whole people, but also by individual hearts, is sin. And throughout the Bible, we're taught that living in sin always leads to death. Romans 6, 30, uh, 30, 23, it should say 23, I hope it says 23. Um, Romans six twenty three says the wages or the consequence of sin is death. And what I think is really interesting about that word wages, wages are something you earn through what you do. Sin isn't just a single act. It's the way we live. It's the way we behave. It's the things that dominate our heart. It is in acts. It's very much in acts but it is the consequence of our hearts, desires, and goals, and where we're putting our value and our hope. And that's always going to lead to death. The outcome of that, the outcome of working in a sinful way is death. And this passage reveals that God has seen the sin of the people of Israel and has decided that they need to be punished for it, that there must be a balancing of sin. And the drought is sent to famish the land. Um, I've written famish the land. Famish the land. Basically, a drought is sent, and that is going to reveal the power of God, and it's going to reveal the consequence of sin. I don't believe that the goal of the drought is simply to starve everyone as a punishment, but I think it's instead to reveal to the people of Israel that their ways are leading to death. The drought is a physical revelation of the weight of their sin. The drought is actually both a punishment and a mercy. It's justice for sin. It's a punishment for rebellion, but it's giving them a glimpse and an opportunity to see what their actions are already leading to. It's giving them an opportunity to understand the consequences of what they're doing. And the drought is a physical one, but the sin and the death that they're building up is an eternal one. And this drought is allowing them an opportunity to turn away and pursue an alternative. And in this, prophet, in this passage, we see Elijah, the prophet who has been sent to reveal the message to King Ahab and the Israelites. He's protected because he is a man seeking after the heart of God. He is listening to God and obeying his commandments in a nation of sin and turmoil and brokenness. One man has heard the voice of God, responded to it, and been obedient. And in response to that, he is fed and provided for and looked after because God loves a heart that seeks after him. If God is just, then he punishes where punishment is needed and he provides where provision is needed. When we talk about punishment, we are talking about the very absence of the good gifts of God. There is nothing worse than not having the gifts that God wants to give us, the relationship he wants to have with us. And we choose sin so often in our lives. This is quite deep and this is quite dark and I understand that. But this is good news because God always has a plan. God always has something to lift us out of that place. And we see that Elijah in communion with God, listening and obeying is provided for in abundance. Every morning, the raven brings meat. Every morning, the raven brings bread. Every evening, the raven brings meat. And every evening, the raven brings bread. Every day, every day, 
This is a man after God's heart and God is looking after him. It's a true miracle. It's a sign of God's provision. And it draws a clear parallel that almost every Jewish person would have understood. This man is in the wilderness, surviving on the gracious gift of God for his daily sustenance. It points to an earlier part of Jewish history where a whole nation went into a wilderness after slavery in Egypt and relied every day on God's provision and his sustenance. This is from a nation who followed him to a single man who is following him. In the next few weeks, we're going to cover the next part of this chapter where we see yet another way that God provided food and water for Elijah during the years of drought. But even in this passage, we can see that God does provide for his people, people who are marked out by obedience and love for him. It may seem harsh that what I'm talking about, sin is deserving of death and punishment, but God is just and that is the only way that sin can be reconciled. God's very nature is goodness and purity. It can't be in the presence of sin. But our second passage comes a bit later. And our second passage comes three and a half years after the events of this original passage. Elijah has performed numerous signs and wonders. He's defeated the rival prophets and sorcerers of other religions, including those who worship the false god Baal. And after he does that, the people of Israel fall down in worship to God. There is a moment where the prophets are defeated. The false prophets, sorry, are defeated. The false sorcerers, they cannot conjure the miracle that God can and does. And these people, these people of Israel who have fallen so far from God recognise they've got it wrong and they fall at God's feet. They fall prostrate, it says, which is just like, abjectly still on the floor in adoration and wonder at what has happened. We don't quite have that bit of the text in our passage. That's going to happen in a few weeks, so they're really going to look at that. Um, And Elijah ends that act, that act of the false teachers being defeated, by ordering them to be executed. And Ahab allows that to happen. King Ahab, the most evil of all the rulers, allows this execution of his favoured prophets and sorcerers because he's witnessed God's power. He doesn't suddenly become a good guy. Many other things happen. But where we are in 1 Kings 18, 41 to 46, is having seen these sorcerers executed and seen God's power. And now we hear Elijah say to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink and Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he tells his servant. His servant went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And the seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah says, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezebel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into a belt, he ran ahead of Ahab to Jezreel. Something has happened. 
Something has changed. The people of Israel have turned back to God. Miracles have been performed. And so God speaks through Elijah. Elijah says to the king, there is a sound of a heavy rain. And everything in the environment around them would say, that, of course there isn't a sound of a heavy rain. It's sunny. It's been a drought for three and a half years. But Elijah speaks the words of God to King Ahab. And then he goes in prayer to the Lord. He goes and he puts his head between his knees in an ultimate vulnerability, an ultimate place of prayer. So our second point is that God loves his children and God is just. As soon as the people of Israel acknowledge God and cast aside their false teachers and idols, God uses Elijah to announce the return of the rain, to end the drought. It's more than just physical rain. It's the return of God's favour for his people. It's a return of God's grace upon the land. And there's a bit of a process to it. This ritual of seven times that the servant is told to look towards the sea while Elijah prays. Six times nothing happens. Six times the servant is wondering what is happening. Elijah got this so right last time. Doesn't seem like it's working this time. But he continues to go. Elijah keeps saying, go back. And eventually the servant sees it. A tiny cloud a tiny sign of what God has promised coming into existence and truth. And within another verse, the sky is black with clouds, the wind is rising, there's a heavy rain, the whole land is being refreshed. And it started through a prophecy, it started through a time of prayer, it started by having the faith to look, it started because people turned back towards God and he loves his children and wants to bless them. Matthew 17, 11 says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. The nature of God is unchanging, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament. When the children of God come before him in obedience and humility and love, he responds. He responds. He loves his children and he is just. When we come before him, he wants to bless us. He wants us to come. And I think we can get a little bit stuck on the difficulties of some of these stories in the book of Kings. Because honestly, the whole book of Kings is a story of the people failing. The whole book of Kings is a story of prophets coming and people turning back to him for just a little while, but it not quite being enough, it not quite being right. It's never final in the book of Kings. They keep getting it wrong. They keep succumbing to their human nature. And we can read it or skip over the difficult bits because we like to think of God as so good without balancing it with the fact that he is both 100% good and 100% just. He's not going to reward us for disobedience. He's not going to reward his people for turning against him. He can't. That's not the nature of God. But in his justice, in the way that he shows that he is faithful, he's pointing to a greater act of redemption that's going to come. 
He knows that we can't stay stuck in this cycle of rebellion and distance from him and him turning away and turning back and all of these things happening. That's not right. That's not God's plan. And from the very beginning of time, he had a better plan, a better solution. And that was the person of Jesus, the person who we talk about every week here because we love him and we believe in him and we worship him. And the person who last week we stood in awe in front of because he rose from the grave in the ultimate victory of this plan of redemption that God put in place. And the plan is really simple. We can't do it. We can't live up to the glory of God. The whole Old Testament is the story of us not being able to do it and the story of something greater coming. And the greatness that came was so, 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 so great, so much more than we could possibly imagine. A human, a man like us, could be sat in this congregation now, came, took on an earthly form and was completely God at the same time, completely divine, completely pure. Everything that holds us back, our nature of sin, our nature of rebellion was not in Jesus. In Jesus, we had the truly obedient one, the true representation of what God wanted his relationship with his people to be. A man connected to the Father in a way that we can barely understand. Jesus, who is God, gets down on his knees to pray every day. He goes to the quiet place. He spends time with his Father. He obeys his Father when his Father sends him to a cross to die for us. The people of Israel don't go that far, ever, because they can't. It's not their nature. They don't have the ability to take someone else's sin, someone else's brokenness upon themselves. So Jesus has to come and this story of kings is pointing towards the need for that person. We're going to keep seeing that in the next few weeks. And Jesus comes and he takes that sin and he breaks this cycle forever. The cycle of us turning away, rebelling, going far from God, and not being able to get back without God doing the act is done because God has sent his son, the only person who could be truly obedient and truly complete his plan for creation. And that's what we live in as Christians. We live in the knowledge that Christ has won the greatest victory that will ever be done. He's won a victory that we can't fathom or understand because we could never win it for ourselves. We get to live in that and we get to say, yes, there is sin and I get things wrong, but my nature is not sin because I've turned and believed in someone whose nature is not sin. That's the important thing is to come to Jesus and say, you are my saviour. You have taken this upon myself. And we get things wrong and we get things wrong all the time. But actually, we come back to a father and come back to a son who takes that on for himself in obedience and faith. And I just want to finish by looking at the act of Elijah praying. I think he does three things when he prays. I think he prays with faith. He's praying with confidence that God is going to answer his prayer. He's down on his knees. He knows that the rain is going to come because God has told him the rain is going to come. So we can pray like Elijah, powerful and effective prayers. Pray big things, knowing that God will do what he said he will do. The second thing that he does is Elijah persists in his prayer. The first six times that Elijah prays and sends his servant, he doesn't see an answer. He doesn't see an answer at all, but he continues in prayer. 
And it can be easy to give up on prayer. It can be easy to stop speaking to God when we don't see him acting the way we would like him to act, at the timeline we would like him to act. Sometimes we're going to be persisting in prayer for years and years and years, and we may never see the fruit of that prayer. But God is good, and he loves his people. He's going to answer prayers. And the third thing that Elijah does is he he prays a listening prayer. Throughout the passages, we see Elijah praying and then acting in response to what God is saying. We're going to see that time and time again over this sermon series. A key part of the way we pray and the way we see Elijah pray is that we listen to God's voice and then we let that shape both how we act and behave, but also how we pray when we come back into God's presence to pray. Elijah is praying a prayer that he knows will be answered because God has told him to be answered. And yet it's still worth praying. It's still worth coming to God and asking for that, asking to see what he has been promised. And Elijah acts at every point he's obedient to what he hears in prayer. I believe that God loves his children. He wants to answer our prayers. He wants us to come to him and ask faithful, bold prayers. He wants us to pray that droughts will end that lives will be changed, that hearts are transformed, that our friends and family who don't know Jesus will come to know Jesus. He wants us to persist in that, to believe that he can do that because he can do those things. We might not see all of the answers to the prayers we want, but if we come to him in prayer, we're going to see answers to prayers. We're going to see incredible things happen. We're going to see change in our lives and in the lives of people around us and communities around us. Elijah got to see a famine end, a drought end. He got to see a whole land transformed because of what he prayed and because of what God told him. And that, I guess, is my challenge as the band come up um, to lead us in worship is, are you praying for transformation? Are you praying like Elijah, that God is so big and so good that if he wanted to transform this city, if we ask him to transform his city, the city will be transformed? that nothing will stand against him. If your situation is difficult and you can't see how that could be solved, are you coming believing that God can change that situation? Are you coming time and time and time again? Are you coming to God full of the faith that Elijah had? Are you coming to God knowing that he is just and true and he wants to overturn the sin in your life, that he wants to come in? He wants you to know Jesus. He wants you to know freedom. He wants you to know a saviour. That is the very nature of God. He wants us to have opportunities to come back to him. And today, like every day, is an opportunity to come back to him and pray those prayers. I was really struck, like I said, by Mikey talking about the awe of the Lord. God is big and he is good and he is great and he can transform situations.